Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. to be free. <clears throat> well, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. The older I get, the less I have an idea about it. It is, it took me from where I live to get down to the studios, which is a long sort of inconvenient trip because I take a bus down here being too claustrophobic to get on a subway train. It would be faster and easier if I took, um, took underground transit rather than surface transit because taking a bus down here from where I live, it's a different part of Manhattan. And um, it's extraordinarily inconvenient. It takes forever, and the traffic gets worse and worse and worse. <clears throat> and then what happens is you get a day like today in, uh, in New York City. Uh, I don't know what it's like where the weather is like where you are, but uh, 
it is nasty out today. It is nasty. It is. It went from being, I think, summer a week or two ago to uh, late fall. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. Of course I exaggerate. It's, it's uh, cold and really windy and blustery and um, raining. Raining, so and people's the kind of rain uh, and the kind of day that's uh, that takes your umbrella, the kind of wind that takes your umbrella, turns it inside out, and makes it almost useless. And even when you're holding it up, you still get soaked. Um, people uh, crowding on the streets. The weather uh, affects the traffic. The traffic, which is already slow, slows down to uh, to a total crawl, and then just stops. There's uh, something about the uh, the rain. Uh, not that it's that more dangerous to drive in the rain, although it is more dangerous for buses and cabs and cars and trucks. It's just that it slows it all down. There's something about it that slows it down. It's funny when you say the weather is nasty out. You know all these um, adjectives for the weather? The weather is, my favorite one is treacherous. Be careful how you walk. It's treacherous. Treacherous? Really? Nasty? The weather is not nasty, is it? <laughs> it's how I'm perceiving it. It's like there's something personal about it, something alive. The weather is not, the weather is not um, out there with an intent to be vicious and nasty. There's a, there's a cruel wind out on the plains tonight, a cruel wind. Really cruel? Does the weather intend to be anything? I don't know. Does the sidewalk intend to be treacherous? Uh, does, does the sidewalk is the sidewalk patriotic and supports you and the country, and then sometimes turns traitor, and then you slip on it? <laughs> it's amazing how we give these uh, these human qualities to all the weather, to the weather, and uh, to, to things that are completely objective, and um, are just just are what they are. They have no intention. They have no intention of being cruel or treacherous or nasty. But um, it's descriptive. You know, it's descriptive. Or you could just use objective terms. You could say it's cold and it's windy and it's breezy. And um, the weather, the, but even the people on the, on the weather uh, reports, you know, the few times that I've ever watched them, I usually just turn weather reports off because they're so cheery all the time. Some woman or some man will get on and say, you know, with this bright sort of cheerful, almost um, enthusiastic point of view, well, it looks like we're going to have some big storms. Uh, maybe they'll put on a, a slightly concerned look, you know, like uh, they're, 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 that they should be worried. But in their studio, a thousand miles away or two thousand miles away from where, from the weather they're describing, looks like we might have some chance of flooding there, um, Bob. Oh, are you concerned? Are you really concerned about it? Well, all of this talk, blah 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 blah. The um, the debates. I should so should I talk about the debates? <laughs> is there anything to say about the debates? This is a weekly show, very weekly, and um, um, <clears throat> so you know I'm not uh, right on top of the news. Obviously, even if I could, even if it was a daily show, it would be difficult to uh, to be on top of the news anymore, since the news occurs every minute or every five seconds. There's news different because of the internet and because of social media. 
But um, I'm assuming that most of you watch the debates. Actually, I went over to play um, Scrabble. I play a lot of Scrabble games these days to pass the time with various people. And uh, a game I always liked. One of the few things I ever did with my mother when I was young that was, um, I don't know, <clears throat> that was positive, that was real. Uh, and I actually learned something. She'd say, go look it up. Go look it up. How do you spell this word, Mom? Go look it up although I didn't refer to her by her title very often. How do you spell this word? Go look it up. So she was teaching me. Anyhow, uh, so I was over playing Scrabble with somebody uh, on Monday afternoon of the debate, this past Monday afternoon. I said, are you going to watch the debate? She said, no, uh, my husband, her husband is um, a very politically oriented uh, lawyer. He's retired now, but uh, in his day... He was uh, very much involved with politics and very left-wing uh, liberal politics and a lawyer who defended – whose firm defended um, – had a lot of – did a lot of pro bono work, although they were a corporate – not a corporate law firm, but a private law firm. They did pro bono work and they defended um, people who uh, took extreme or left-wing stands on issues, uh, issues of freedom of speech and then – they defended people who were victims of uh, police abuse, uh, racial abuse, things like that, set up and, you know, landed in jail. A very decent law firm. Anyhow, this guy was obviously going to watch the debates, and I talked to him a little bit about it. And his wife, who was originally from England, said, uh, no, she's going to go in the bedroom and she's going to uh, watch on another TV. She's going to watch a movie because she can't stand looking at Trump. I know. I know that there's a lot of people like that. I've been like that. Uh, I can't stand looking at either one of them, actually, because I feel like I've heard it all before. And that not one word, this is my feeling, you know, this is my personal feeling, that I don't believe one single word of what comes out of their mouths. It's all, they have staffs, professional polling organizations. Uh, they're spending millions, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, they are taking the temperature of various uh, districts and states and, uh, and uh, regions of the country, and they are doing focus groups on every single word they say. They say what they have to say to get elected. It means absolutely nothing, nothing, when it comes to what they will do when they are finally, if they are finally elected. So I don't really pay much attention to them. And I never liked Hillary Clinton very much. I don't know why I don't like her. You know, I'm supposed to like her now, according to uh, the, my paper, that I, my daily newspaper, the New York Times. I'm supposed to finally figure out that she is a likable person. She's just been um, jumped on by people since she's been in, uh, in, um, in public light. You know, since she's been in public life, she's been uh, harassed by people. She's been jumped on. She tried to do things. And this is probably true, that uh, she was um, tough and she was assertive. Just as she was, forget she was tough. See, that's a, a masculine judgment. But she was an assertive or is an assertive and was an assertive woman, aggressive. And uh, there are people like that. If we're going to talk about real equality, then in the end... Um, People have to be, uh, people are described a certain way. She's an aggressive person. Forget about woman. But, you know, for her time, she was still, 
uh, was still and is still, because it still exists, breaking through all kinds of barriers that women are, are supposed to break through. And after all, there she is finally up there with, uh, and, and so Hillary Clinton, I don't know. I didn't like her because she is so bossy and pushy and secretive and uh, overambitious for me, you know. And I, <laughs> I mean, not just because I have no ambition at all, but uh, somebody who, you know, who who wants to be the queen, you know, somebody who will sort of stop at nothing type to be the queen. And uh, good for her. I hope she does because of the alternative. Uh, yeah, I know the Libertarian Party and the uh, the Green Party. Okay, um, I said the names. Do I have to say anything else about them anymore? I don't know. I'm not dismissing them. I'm not dismissing what they stand for. Certainly, um, in a decent uh, world, in a decent country, I guess we should be able to uh, hear them debate on the same stage as uh, Hillary and Donald. Um, <clears throat> But uh, so I see the two of them up there. So to this woman, I was playing Scrabble. She says, no, I'm not even going to look at him. And I understand that point of view. I mean, the whole time that they've been talking for the last, is it 10 years now or is it 20 years that they've been running for president? The whole time that they've been making speeches and there have been news clips and, and longer clips and things on YouTube of her speeches and his speeches, uh, innumerable, right? Um, I can't stand to look at him. I can't stand to listen to him and look at him. There is something about the way he speaks and the way he looks. Now, she has that, um, she has that harsh look, which I'm sure is something that uh, is complicated. I think she's probably, she's had a hard life in her own way. She's had a hard life. Yeah, she's had an easy life when it comes to uh, power and money that we, a lot of us wish we had, right? Yeah, she's had an easy life. She's lived fairly well since she was a child. She lived in a middle-class life, and then I think later on, upper middle class, as her father made more money. And she went to um, a very good school, and she was never really lacking for anything. <clears throat> I don't think she was ever struggling or starving in a circumstantial way, right? So um, she, you know, she, she, she's, uh, she's been comfortable most of her life, and now, of course, she's rich, uh, she's quite rich. She has tens of millions of dollars. And a lot of that comes from, uh, well, who knows where all of it comes from, but a lot of that comes from speaking engagements, books she's written and speaking engagements where she got paid, for instance, $350,000 or whatever it was, $325,000, three separate times by, was it Goldman Sachs or some Wall Street firms? And she and her husband, Mr. Bill, are very rich. But there's something about her I just don't like. I don't take to her. And partially it's that harshness. That There's a feeling of arrogance and harshness and um, contempt that she has that, that, that comes off her. How much of that, and it's so complicated, how much of that is because she's been an aggressive woman um, in a country that does not want aggressive women, uh, this masculine-dominated country, uh, up until maybe now, if she gets to be president, I could feel there's a giant switch. Do you feel this giant pivot happening with, um, with famous women uh, and women in charge, more and more women in uh, colleges, more women doing better in colleges, more women doctors, more women lawyers, uh, the women athletes who are so celebrated down at the Olympics, um, uh, 
women who are more and more becoming uh, representatives in Congress and senators, women who are appointed secretary of state like she was. <clears throat> so she's set some, uh, some records um, herself. And in the course of doing that, she's had to be tougher than a man would be. Uh, but I think seeing through all this toughness that she's had displayed, had to display culturally and circumstantially because of the world, uh, the, the masculine-dominated world we live in, and the anti-female world. There's a lot of uh, fear and, um, and distrust and outright hatred on the part of many men, especially more conservative and uh, right-wing men, but it's not limited to them. Generally, men... I guess I'm talking about a certain uh, generation. I'm talking about a certain generation. Uh, men of my generation, which is to say, no matter how liberal or how left-wing or how much we are for equality, still had that old-fashioned, um, you know, women should be um, <clears throat> really following men around. Women should be serving men. Women should be... Um, um, should be obsequious to men. Women should, at the very least, you know, if you're not going to use these harsh terms, uh, and this, like I was saying, this goes for liberal and even left-wing uh, men, women should be secondary to men in almost every way. And um, I don't know how generational that is. I mean, my generation, I'm, you know, I'm an oldster. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a 60s type. Uh, so no matter what the revolutionary... Um, uh, phase we were in uh, when it came to civil rights, uh, equal rights, uh, when it came to uh, the Vietnam War, whatever, whatever, whatever revolutionary state we were all in at the time, those of us who were in it, uh, we still had that attitude that uh, men should be in charge and women should be the followers. Women should be second in charge. <clears throat> the idea that women would be in charge of uh, a group of, uh, of, uh, of protesters, that women should be in charge of uh, large organizations that were involved with protesting, um, large liberal organizations, that women should run things like that, was, uh, uh, for my generation, still uh, a hard sell. It was a hard sell. Um, but I come from a back, but still it was more than any other part of the country. Uh, when you were to look, if you were to look around in the 60s and the 70s for uh, any place, any organization or any movement that had women in charge, you would have to, uh, you would have to look uh, more at uh, left and liberal organizations. However, now it's a new world, and there are women CEOs. There are women who are starting up uh, startups who are entrepreneurial. And yet I hear, although you know I'm saying it could be just uh, generational, and that the, I'm thinking a new generation, a new generation of uh, of people, people in their 20s, people in their 30s, perhaps people in their 40s, um, in this country don't see things that way. They don't see things that way. Women are. School principals, women are lawyers, women are doctors, women are, uh, you know, brain surgeons, women are astronauts, women are, um, you know, and now there are women um, in the military in, and increasingly, I guess, in combat roles. So things are becoming more equal all the time. Eventually, uh, I think that they will become, uh, I mean, there are certain things that can't be that way, like 
there'll never be a woman, um, not saying never, but uh, it would, it's very unlikely that women, I mean, women are cops now for the last 20, 30 years, more and more women cops. So you see women cops a lot, um, not as many as males, but, uh, and there's reasons for that too, you know, cultural and circumstantial reasons. But uh, it's very difficult to imagine women, uh, you don't see that women, uh, sanit- that many women sanitation workers, garbage men. You don't see women garbage men. <laughs> and you don't see women firemen either. Um, there are certain physical um, differences between men and women still. Men are bigger, faster, and stronger. I read an article in the um, sports uh, section of the New York Times the other day that said uh, there is a woman, I think she's in college now, is she in college, who is being considered to be the first woman to play, uh, who would be drafted to play for a major league uh, professional baseball team. Uh, you know, start out in, uh, in the minor leagues, in the A ball, double A, triple A, whatever. And I think she's a pitcher. I'm pretty sure she's a pitcher, which makes sense when you think about it. So generally speaking, no, women, uh, and it will stay this way until uh, uh, considering, the fa- like, you know, it, uh, uh, hoping that there's still a human race after all the human race is trying to do to destroy itself. If there is a continuing human race, maybe there'll be a physical um, evolution and there'll be literally more equality, physical equality, but now there isn't. Now there isn't so much. What was I talking about? I was talking about the debates. <laughs> when I get off on the deep end here. Um, so I watched the debates, and I, too, cannot stand to watch Mr. Trump. I don't like watching her so much. Uh, one reason I don't like watching her is because I say, because she can be very harsh and hectoring, and she points that finger, and she lectures, and... Um, she gets that steely look in her eye, and she gets that harsh look on her face. And all I can think about is um, uh, my, in fact, my uh, junior high school, uh, my junior high school uh, dean of students, who was a woman, my uh, elementary school principal, who was not so harsh, but she could be very strict and very firm and um, very terrifying if you're a little kid, right? The principal. A lot of uh, elementary school teachers and principals were uh, even going back to the old days with me when I was a kid were, uh, were women. And I had a high school principal who was, um, who also, you know, it was tough. She was one of the few high school principals in New York City. And she had, to, she had a rough life getting there. I mean, any woman who would achieve these things, and to this day any woman still, who achieves these things in a professional way, who becomes eventually the CEO of a company or uh, a senator or, um, you know, the head of a law firm or anything like that, uh, they do have to work harder than men. They have to be tougher uh, than the toughest men around them in their organization and they be harsher and they have to be harsher and they have to be harder often to be that way. Whether it changes their personality from the outside in, I don't know. So I don't know, but Hillary Clinton, I always had the, the sensation that she's, um, she's just tough and scheming. She's kind of a Lady Macbeth to begin with. So looking at her, not my favorite thing to do. But looking at him, forget about it. I mean, this guy is, he's repulsive in almost a physical, he's a repulsive in a physical way. I was going to say almost, but there's nothing almost about it. There's something about him that makes me ill, like physically ill to watch him. He looks 
like he's going to explode all the time. He looks, he doesn't look like a human being to me. He looks like a puffed up kind of vegetable or fruit that's going to like, it's too ripe, that's going to explode any second. And he, um, the extent that he is a human being, and of course he's a human being, he's just a very unpleasant, vulgar human being, to the extent that he is, um, he, um, he's just, um, he's just uh, unbearable to me. I, 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 the people who listen to him, the people who follow him, and his followers uh, will stay his followers. I don't think, um, well, who knows, right? Maybe there were people who, uh, who liked what he was saying. After all, sometimes he's saying things that a lot of other people feel like saying, but they just don't have the nerve to say, especially not if they're running for public office. And that's been one of his alleged um, and possibly even real... Um, um, you know, positive, uh, positive, but uh, important uh, achievements is that he is just, since he's so impulsive and since he has uh, his finger on a kind of a primitive pulse that beats w- within and underneath the skin of all of us, including intellectuals and liberals and however else people define themselves and Democrats, he is saying things that people agree with. I mean, when he says, when Trump says things like, um, you know, um, <clears throat> that, um, use the, one of the most extreme ones, that uh, we should ban Muslims from the country. There's a lot of people in this country who would never say that out loud, but who would be, who would feel safer if a lot of, uh, and to the extent that they know any Muslims whatsoever, to the extent that Muslims from certain countries were banned from this country. That, um, I mean, when there have been terrorist attacks in this country uh, going back now, let's say all the way to, to, to 2001, um, and there have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, bombs being set, there have been, um, you know, uh, attempted uh, bombings of planes, there have been shootings. Uh, often you hear, uh, you know, um, um, Allah is, uh, is great. <laughs> often, often you hear this. This is something you hear. Now, I'm not trying to be anti-Muslim here. I'm not attempting to be that way. Uh, it's absurd for me to be like that because it's not true. Obviously, we have plenty of homegrown, non-Muslim independent, uh, wacko people who have been shooting people and murdering people en masse in this country forever and are still doing it, right? The, uh, the alarming amount of guns in the hands of lunatics. But still, on the most primitive, irrational basis, that's what I'm trying to say, on a primitive, irrational basis, Trump is voicing the point of view of a lot of people who would never... Uh, say it out loud and would never even put it into practice, would try hard uh, against their own fears, let's say. But uh, when you get a group like ISIS uh, telling people all over the world publicly that if you're a Muslim and you really, uh, you know, if you really believe that you should be attacking the uh, infidels anywhere, no matter men, women, children, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, this is uh, upsetting. And Trump says these things out loud and many other things that he says out loud, too, all of which are exclusionary. They're absurd. They're unconstitutional. And um, 
they're, uh, a lot of them are just plain inhuman. I mean, if he wants to build walls between everybody, there's going to be a perpetuation of, um, if you don't talk to people, if you don't talk even to your enemies, especially to your enemies, then you have perpetual warfare. Then, you know, Trump will be, uh, it's like um, George Bush at his worst was no, was no different than Osama bin Laden. I mean, they were, they were like uh, mirror images of each other. And Trump, you know, is, uh, could easily be, if he works hard enough at it, and maybe not so hard considering his personality, could be the mirror image of ISIS. I don't know. So I, but I'm looking at him. There's something about the way he's got these prissy little gestures. And I, I use that word on purpose. I mean, he's always going on and on about what, uh, how filled with testosterone he is. I mean, he's got a testosterone count of 10,000 or something like that. And women are crazy, making it very clear that women are crazy about him. He surrounds himself with all these women who look like runway models and who look like beauty pageant queens. And all of them, or a lot of them, really uh, were. And even uh, his uh, daughter's-in-law uh, have that same look. There's something about the men in his family that seem to need to surround themselves with women who, who look this way. And his own wife, what's her name? Melania, I think, um, was, uh, was she, she was a beauty queen or um, a fashion model in Europe before she came to this country and also in this country too. There's something about him trying to prove all the time what a man he is that makes you really wonder uh, you know, what his sexual, you know, is he secure in his sexual orientation? Not that that's bad or, you know, not that that's, um, not that there's something wrong with that. I mean, if he's, if the man feels confused in his sexual orientation, he feels confused. Uh, many people do, you know, that's, uh, there've been times in my life when I've gone through periods like that. So, uh, and after all, aren't we all, don't we all start out as, uh, girls? When we're in her womb, don't we all start out as girls? I think I read somewhere that uh, all fetuses start out as female, and then uh, some develop male characteristics afterwards. Obviously, some do. But the way he puts his fingers together in that odd little, you know, where he, he, he sticks his pinky out and he puts his fingers together in that odd little circular motion, and the way he has that tiny little hard frown and then those tiny little hard, you know, uh, lips that he purses together and, and he narrows his eyes to slits. He looks like a cartoon and he looks obnoxious and he's repulsive to look at. When it comes to the debate, the only thing I can say is that uh, a couple of times when I was getting tired of them um, yelling back and forth at each other, I just turned the sound off. And you can tell far more, I'm not the only one who's noticing this, you can tell far more um, who's winning and losing and who's, what somebody's temperament, clearly you can tell what somebody's temperament is like less from the content of what they're saying than than how they look when they're saying it. And she, uh, God bless her, you know, she listened to the people who, uh, who trained with her and she's, maybe she's smarter than he is. And she knew what she had to do. She couldn't risk because she's a woman looking like she was a hectoring, um, condescending schoolmarm or high school principal, which she has a habit of doing sometimes. She couldn't be uh, stealing her eyes and getting that nasty, arrogant look on her face and that hard, angry look on her face and sticking her finger out and poking at him. 
and she hardly turned to him at all. Once in a while, you know, when he was talking, she politely looked over at him. She didn't hardly ever interrupt him. I read somewhere that he interrupted her 52 times, and she interrupted him 17 times. And they weren't even uh, the kinds of interruptions. But that, that kind of childlike, teenagerish or adolescent or pre-adolescent uh, thing where he does, where, he, where she was talking, he would say, wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all that stuff about uh, she doesn't have the she doesn't the moderator brought it up she doesn't have the look of a president she means he means she's an old lady that's what he's saying she's an she's a woman and she's an old woman too yeah she she shouldn't be president look at her she's an old woman she's not a young babe bursting with uh, sex and you know uh, panting after me uh, the greatest man that ever lived the most interesting man that ever lived, uh, you know, that commercial. Um, she's just an old, dried-up lady, and she's an, uh, a woman, and you, know, you don't, you know, she doesn't look like a president. That's because she's, you know, that's because she's not a man. <laughs> that's what he's saying, and especially because she's not the kind of man I am, the manly man that I am, you know, big, strong, surrounded by billions of dollars, if he has billions of dollars, and surrounded by adoring, gorgeous, glamorous women, if that's the kind of woman that you think is gorgeous and glamorous. And, um, and then the, the other thing about his being a, a racist, I mean, clearly the man is a racist, but that's one of the things he's saying that appeals to, um, to millions, perhaps tens of millions of uh, white people. Uh, and some of them Democrats and some of them, uh, you know, who call themselves liberals, who, like I say, wouldn't say it or wouldn't act on it necessarily. But so I think basically you have to say that she probably won the first debate. And what it means, I don't know. What it, what, what it will mean, I don't know. Anybody who's going to vote for him uh, is probably still going to vote for him, although there are probably some people somewhere in the middle. I don't think there's very many middle voters or undeclared voters this time around. There are people who see a very clear choice between, if not necessarily policies, but certainly personalities. And she's obviously more liberal than him. All you have to do is say the magic word Supreme Court, and you know that he can't be the president. You can't vote for him. You have to vote for her. Um, he can't, you can't allow a man like that to appoint people. <clears throat> or to be told by some committee of really powerful billionaires and conservatives who to appoint to the Supreme Court. It's already a disaster, and it caused so much trouble. So I'd say she won on points, uh, and it was temperament. It was because of the way she acted, not anything that she said particularly at all. Um, and it was because of the way he acted that he lost on points, and maybe more on points. Maybe he got uh, bashed in this last debate. And it had nothing to do with what he says. He says the same thing all the time. Did she lose any voters or gain any voters? I don't know. Did he lose any or gain any? I don't know. So that's it for the first debate. And I think what I'll do is take a little break right now and uh, come back in a minute. Thank you. 
The other day, <clears throat> one thing I love to do with my camera when the weather is good enough and when I'm steady enough and not, you know, uh, hiding my apartment when I have the uh, nerve and the physical ability to go out these days to take pictures. One thing I love to take pictures of in Manhattan, and uh, this is probably something, no, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not exclusive to just cities. Um, I was going to say mostly in big cities you would find the graffiti. I love to take pictures of wall paintings and graffiti. Uh, on uh, mailboxes, on lampposts, on the sidewalk, especially on walls, where uh, you know, which is the largest, biggest canvas, and especially in New York City, uh, I don't know how it is in other places, but on the side of trucks, <laughs> the any truck in New York City is a target for graffiti, especially a truck that's um, more blank on the sides, uh, doesn't have a lot of lettering or doesn't have its own illustrations. So I was uh, went out the other day, and there was I noticed when I was walking around that there was a wall painting about two blocks away from uh, where I live, and um, I went out and took a couple of pictures of it. They didn't turn out so well. Sometimes, no matter how interesting the um, the paintings on the wall are, um, the picture that I take isn't as interesting. Or sometimes I take a really good picture, and it turns out that uh, when I look at it later on. You can always tell when you look at it later on, necessarily not, not necessarily right after you take it. But um, that sometimes the painting just isn't that interesting, or the details of the painting isn't that interesting. But I took, um, I took a picture of this wall painting, which was about, like I say, about two and a half blocks from where I live. And I had to walk down a block or walk past a block where my son's old school was, his middle school. My son is now... 31 years old, and he's my younger child. <laughs> how did I get so old? I don't know how I got so old. Um, and he's my younger child. So um, <clears throat> there was his middle school, and he went to that when he was 12 and 13. It was a speeded up, uh, speeded up process. Uh, he didn't go when he was 11, 12, and 13, or 12, 13, and 14. He went when he was uh, 12 and 13 and then went uh, straight to high school after that. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I looked down the block, and I haven't been down that block in a long time. Um, memories, I don't know. Memories of uh, that I didn't really want to, uh, to dredge up. Uh, uh, but I did, uh, I was kind of fond of that block in a way because when he went to school there, he... Um, he uh, had been living, you know, I, I, I left the house. Uh, my 
my ex-wife and I got divorced when uh, when my son was five years old and when my daughter was 10 years old. <clears throat> and uh, they, you know, I, I saw them on weekends and I saw them, they slept over, he slept over one night and my daughter slept over another night. Uh, I was only 30 blocks away. Uh, they were down in, uh, in the 70s. Uh, in uh, Manhattan in, in the West 70s, and I was up around the West 100s. And so I saw a lot of them, spoke to them on the phone every night. Um, but uh, to go back and to, to see, you know, um, uh, situations and uh, places where he was or where she was uh, after I left always makes me feel guilty and uh, makes me feel, um, you know, like uh, at the very best, a kind of a mixed feeling, but usually a feeling of guilt and um, self-recrimination of the worst sort, uh, having left them. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the story of my uh, divorce and uh, the story of all of that is still like, you know, almost too personal uh, for other people, not just for me, but too personal uh, to go over and to talk about. It's uh, too painful. And I don't think that uh, that my kids would appreciate me talking about that too much anyhow. But his middle school was a block away from this place where I was taking the wall paintings. And I remember I liked him going to this middle school because he was right around the corner then. Every day, all day long, he was right around the corner from where I was working because I was working freelance at the time, selling, uh, buying and selling old books. And right across the street from this, uh, from this school that he was going to, and it was making me happy that he was only a block and a half or two blocks away, and every once in a while we would meet and have pizza. You know, uh, he, <clears throat> he did me the favor of not being with his friends, which is a big thing when you're 12 or 13 years old. To, uh, to hang around with your old father. It's, it's embarrassing. It's not cool at all. But uh, you know, once in a while, he and I would have pizza or he would come over uh, after school and, and hang around or maybe spend an extra, uh, sleep over an extra night. So it was nice to have him right around there. And um, uh, across, uh, directly across the street from this uh, middle school turned out to be, this is purely fate, the kind of fate uh, that happens sometimes, uh, was a gigantic warehouse, and in this warehouse were endless rooms, almost like uh, you know, uh, like some kind of uh, something from the Arabian Nights. Endless rooms, treasures, piles, thousands and tens of thousands of old books, fascinating, interesting old books. A lot of junk, but still a lot of fascinating, interesting old books. And I made an arrangement with the owner of this place, the owner of this warehouse since he didn't know what to do with books. He knew all about antiques, and the place was also filled with antiques and uh, abandoned um, uh, clothing. And he had a, a pretty good uh, eye for antiques, especially um, especially uh, valuable or luxurious kind of antiques. But I, you know, I, he didn't know a damn thing about books. The guy was not into, uh, he was not a book type. <laughs> he was not a big reader, and he wasn't brought up to think much of books grew up in his own tough school someplace, became very, very wealthy uh, from various businesses he owned. And um, there was a lot of dead storage in this warehouse. Dead storage being simply a way that uh, the owner of a warehouse, uh, and I only knew it from this guy, but I heard it happened in other places too. Uh, what happens is people store things in warehouses and um, 
sometimes a bill gets deliberately sent to the wrong address. If someone doesn't pay their bill for a couple of months, uh, he takes the lock off. He, you know, he sawed the lock off that belonged to the owner of this room at the warehouse, this storage room, this big old warehouse, and uh, put his own lock on it and then decided that if they didn't you know, um, pay in three months, he would own it. Or sometimes people were overdoing their bill or they didn't pay their bill for two or three months and he just took possession of their property. I don't know if there was a contract in the beginning that said he could do that, but he did it. And other times people died and um, their, um, their heirs, their children, people who inherited their property did not know that they had storage spaces because they didn't write it down anywhere. And so a lot of, uh, um, I probably, ten, over, over uh, a period of a couple of decades, tens of millions of dollars of stuff that belonged to people passed into his hands, which is a polite way of putting it. So I, I made a deal with him that I would go through all the books there since he didn't know anything about books, and I would uh, see if they were any were valuable, and I would go to all the trouble of selling them, which was complicated. I sold them online, and sometimes I sold them on the street, which I love doing. And um, <clears throat> we would split the profits, which we did pretty much for a couple of years. But what I especially liked about being at the warehouse was that it was literally, since it was literally right across the street, I could sit uh, in the area, the loading area, where the loading dock was, um, and watch my son uh, go to school in the morning. The morning, he said, he wasn't sleeping over at my, at my house. He took the bus up from uh, down in the West 70s, took the bus up to where the uh, school was, and I would see him if I got there early enough, the loading dock and every place opened up, uh, the warehouse opened around 7.30, and I would sit there and watch him and it was so nice because uh, it maybe just it just feels so much more um, fatherly and so much more connected to him, you know, that he wasn't living far away. He wasn't going to a school in another part of uh, of the West Side. And I would sit and watch him arrive for school, and he didn't see me. I was sitting in back in um, sort of a darker part of where the warehouse uh, uh, storage and uh, loading uh, dock was. And I would watch him arrive. Sometimes I would, uh, when I would, and I would be working at the warehouse all day long, going through these rooms. And I would look out the window sometimes uh, around lunchtime to see him get out for lunch. And then if I was uh, working around 2.30 or 3 o'clock, I knew what time to get out from school. <clears throat> I would stop working and had my watch on, go over to the window and look out. And um, he didn't know I was there looking at him. And... Um, watch him, uh, you know, watch him leave school with his friends. And it just gave me such a boost. I love doing that. So the, all this, you know, when I was out the other day walking around reminded me of this. And now, um, uh, and that's when he was 12 and 13 years old. What did he do the other day at the age of 31? He and his wife just closed on a house. They now own a house as of this past Monday. They own a house. He's 31 years old. I have never owned a house in my life. I have never been grown up enough to do anything but uh, just manage to scratch together rent each month. I have never been uh, responsible enough or far-seeing enough or um, or um, grown up enough to uh, to put together the uh, the necessary uh, funds to put down on a house. I mean, one time, actually, it's true that I, I did own a house once, but it was because my father died and just left me money. Boom, like that. He died in a plane crash and left me a lot of money. And there was a lawsuit and some money came. And 
I mean, how I went and uh, bought uh, this brownstone. But but my son uh, went to the trouble. You know, he'd been working for a few years. He's a lawyer, and he works in another city. He doesn't work in New York City. And he's a lawyer, and he's been working for a few years. And he and his wife uh, put together the down payment and got some loans from the bank. And uh, since he's a lawyer and a very good lawyer, uh, very careful about details and very uh, cautious and very sure that he's not going to get screwed out of anything. And he has the uh, the law license to sue anybody or to uh, question anybody legally who is trying to do that. Um, he got himself a good deal. And uh, so there he is. He's the owner of a house. And uh, there I am looking. <laughs> that was... It was uh, it was the day before he closed on his house that I went down the block again, or partially down the block, to look at that old school when he was 12 years old. And time just goes so fast when you get older. Now I'm going to be, I'm 71 now. Yes, and then I'm going to be 72 years old. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be 72 years old, but that's the next one that's up. That's the ne- that's not that's who's on deck. <laughs> 72. And the batter's box now is uh, 71, flailing away, trying to even get a base hit. And what's on deck is uh, the age of 72. I don't know. Now, so he's, so he's doing that. And what a grown-up thing. So naturally, I tell him, you know, congratulations. And I'm just <clears throat> so impressed and happy for him that he's, that he's got his own, he's owned his own house now. And um, not only that, my daughter is going to have, um, my daughter who's 36 year old, is going to have a baby at the end of November. Yes, I am actually going to be a grandfather. And it is the strangest, most overwhelming feeling. Uh, as in absolutely everything else to, uh, first of all, again, it makes me feel so old and I've lived so long and I'm going to be a grandfather. <clears throat> uh, the idea that I would ever be anybody's father was foreign to me uh, my whole life. Uh, Even after I was somebody's father, I never quite got used to the idea. I've done my best, but it certainly hasn't been, um, it certainly hasn't been anything to write home about. But uh, I have done my best, and I have been as fatherly as it's possible for a childish person like me to be. Um, But uh, to be, to be somebody's grandfather, it's extraordinary. Unfortunately, uh, she lives very far away. She lives on the West Coast. And uh, I would be happy to see it's going to be a girl, to see my granddaughter. Uh, just saying those words seems so extraordinary to me. I would be happy to, uh, to do that and to help out and to, uh, you know, maybe to, uh, God help me, to do a little uh, when the baby's old enough and I don't really... You know, I, I wouldn't want to risk uh, a little tiny baby in my hands right now since I'm so uh, filled with uh, <laughs> trepidation and some physical problems, too, where I'm not as steady as I should be. But to help out with, uh, to you know, to watch the baby, uh, I could change, uh, change some diapers, uh, give my daughter a rest, hang out with her when she's home with the baby. Sometimes it, it can be really hard. And this is, she, you know, this is her first child. And... Um, she and her husband are uh, are going way overboard to make sure that absolutely everything in the world is absolutely perfect, you know. And uh, <clears throat> they're getting uh, advice from people. They're reading all the books. They're getting uh, they're going to classes about having babies and 
what you do, uh, how you stretch. They, they even went to a class on how you put a baby in um, in uh, a, a car in a car seat. The, the correct way, the correct car seat to buy, a class, an actual class, the correct car seat to buy, and the correct way to load a baby in and to uh, de- and to take the baby out. <laughs> so it's absolutely extraordinary all the stuff they're going through. But I just feel, and people say to me. Um, Oh, you must be so excited, your first grandchild. Well, with me, nothing is ever simple. Uh, I am excited about it, and I'm very happy for her, of course, and happy for her and her husband because they really did want, especially she really did want to, always wanted to have a child. Uh, She's had some troubles, but now they're mostly in the past. She's, um, you know, in a later stage of pregnancy, which is tough, you know, she's feeling like a lot of, or maybe most women do, um, that I've talked to and that I know about from a personal experience, they're feeling like they've been pregnant for about 100 years, and when the hell is this going to be over, right? And she still has several weeks to go. Um, <clears throat> there is some, um, now they're, of course, they're trying to figure out names. I'm not privy to that, and I don't want to be, you know, they're, until they've actually decided on a name for this child. But the idea that there will be, at the end of November, one day, one hour, one minute, a child born who has my DNA in it, a child who was born who is going to be part of a yet another generation that is part of me, that's which it's just absolutely extraordinary to me. I'm just amazed. I mean... And I'm thinking there was my, you know, I knew there was my grandfather who I knew, my father's father and my, um, my mother's father. I didn't know my great-grandparents at all. I never met them. And a lot of my relatives um, stayed over in Europe, did not make it to the United States, and thus did not make it at all after World War II. <clears throat> but yes, I knew my grandparents. So there were my grandparents, and they were old, and uh, my father's father was very old and sick. He had um, Parkinson's disease. <clears throat> and I, you know, um, and I knew my uh, mother's father very well because they lived in the neighborhood where we lived. Uh, but those are my grandparents. Those are my grandparents and my grandmothers, right? But then they were my parents, and then there's me, and then there's my children. And now there's going to be another one, a grandchild. I know I'm babbling on and on and not making any sense here, but it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> it's so extraordinary. It's so absolutely extraordinary. So I will, um, I can't say I'll keep you posted every week. It's nothing to be keep you posted about. But here's my, here's my son who's, uh, who's middle school I was looking at the other day. And there's my daughter whose picture I, I have many different pictures of her. And there's a picture of her when she was about uh, five years old, and I think of and I think of them, you know, I, every parent does this, I think of them when I think of them often in my mind, since, especially since they live in another place, I think of them as they were when they were children and, uh, or when they were teenagers at the most. But now one of them owns a house and the other one is going to have a baby. How life does move on, it's really absolutely extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary.
Fire and the fury 